Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. Today's guest is Sedona Dawn. Sedona had an NDE and she experienced the light of God and we're going to talk about it. But before we get into it, Sedona has wished to remain anonymous for her and her family's safety. So that's what you're seeing today. Sedona, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you for having me, Jeff. All right. Well, my audience loves to hear about NDEs. So can we start on the day yours happened? Um, the day mine happened was on April 8th and April 9th, 2006. Um, it happened at 4.51 in the morning on April 8th, 2006. All right. Well, what happened? Um, what happened was uh, I, um, I had been working at a strip club. And about uh, four months into working there, I had met a customer. And we're going to name him Ken. And uh, Ken was a very nice, personable sort of guy. And he had a, you know, he's handsome and he had an upbeat sense of humor and fun to hang out with. And um, just overall, a really nice customer. And um, uh, over, I guess this was in April of 2005 when I met him. And over the next couple of months, he had been asking me out uh, on dates and whatnot. And I, and I, told him I didn't date customers. And um, one of the main reasons why I didn't want to date any of my customers was because I was with my son's father. And even though things weren't going very well, we were engaged. And um, just for that alone, I didn't really feel it was appropriate to be dating anybody else. So um, Ken uh, had asked me out and it continued out over the next couple of months through to about August of 2005. And in that month, at that time, my son's father, um, he, uh, we were, like I said, we weren't doing very well. We were having all sorts of problems. And um, my son's father, uh, he was engaging in activities that were um, very reckless and I will even say illegal. And it just got to the point where this was happening for a while and it wouldn't stop. And it got to the point I realized that if I married this man, I'd be ruining my life. And I had to end the relationship. Um, and by November of 2005, I was moved out into my, my own home down by the beach with my son. And I was then willing to give Ken a chance because uh, um like I said, I really liked him. I thought he was a nice person. And Ken also told me that he was divorced and he was moving out of his place. Um, and his home was clear across the other side of the county, about 40 minutes away. So we were both kind of going through the same thing at the same time in terms of uh, leaving our respective partners and moving on to different homes and whatnot. Um, I started seeing Ken in August 2005, and shortly after I started dating Ken, um, uh, it was after I broke up with my son's father, and I saw that there was a new customer coming to my club, and his name was Derek. We'll call him Derek. And right around the time Derek started coming by, um, we had hired, I guess the club I worked at hired three new dancers and their names were Christina, Eric, uh, Christina, Jules, and Jenna. And 
Derek um, started coming in for my shifts and, you know, I, I didn't really like him very much, but he seemed to be very interested in me. And he would say things like, oh, you know, I'm really unhappily married. And, you know, I wish I wish I could have you for a wife. I want to take care of you and your kid. We should go out. And I told Derek, I'm like, well, I, I don't usually you know, date my customers, especially if they're married. I don't, I don't want to date married guys or anything like that. And Jules and Jenna um, were very, um, they would persuade me to go out with Derek. They were saying things like, oh, Derek's so in love with you. He spends so much money seeing you. You know, he obviously likes you a lot. You should go out with him. And I told these girls, I said, "Uh uh-uh. I said, I'm dating somebody myself and I don't want to date a married customer. You know, that's it. So Derek would come in, um, he would come in for every single one of my shifts. I was working about three or four shifts a week um, at that point. And Derek would come in and visit me for every one of my shifts. This started in August of 2005, and it continued through to April 2006. And the three girls, you know, they would sit with Derek and me at our table and have drinks and we'd all sort of socialize and whatnot. And one day Derek wanted to go into um, one of the lap dance booths with me and Jules and Jules and I went in there with him. And I noticed that Derek was really frustrated at this point that I would not leave the club and date him or go out with him. And I noticed that during the dances that we were doing for him, like I would be sitting next to Derek and Jules would be dancing in front of us. And then when he didn't want her to dance anymore, he would yank me off my seat, throw me off the seat and then pull her down next to him. And he was getting very violent and agitated. And that was a red flag to me. And after the dances were over, he paid us and Jules and I went back to the locker room and Christina and Jenna were back there too. And I, I voiced my concern to Jules. I said, Jules, did you see how Derek was acting? He was acting like kind of violent. You know, he was tossing us around and stuff. And, and all three girls were saying, oh, no, you know what? He was just really drunk. He really is in love with you. He wants to go out with you. I mean, and I said, well, I don't care. You know, it's just it's not OK for him to be doing this. It's not like, you know. So what does Derek do? Does he go to Disneyland and think Minnie Mouse is going to come home and be his kid's nanny? No. Well, he's not going to get me out of the club either. So um, this was April of 2006. And I think it was April 7th, 6th or 7th when this happened. And um, I was uh, talking with the girls about Derek in the dressing room and one one of the other dancers overheard and she says, you know, Sedona, you better be careful. You know, this guy might be a stalker. And then Christina turned around and said to me, oh, yeah, he's a stalker, uh, like in this weird voice. And that made my stomach drop. And I thought, OK, well, this is really weird. Um, I don't know what to do because he's in he's in here for every one of my shifts and he wants to get me out of the club with him and it's not going to happen. So one of the girls in the dressing room, a random girl said, listen, you might want to just take a day or two off and just distance yourself a little bit. And maybe he'll get the hint. And I thought, OK, well, that's a good idea. So Friday, April 7th, I, I remember taking the day off from work and I kept my son home from preschool because if I was going to work, I wasn't going to send him to preschool that day. So we took the day off. And then I heard that one of the well, one of the girls called me and she told me that Derek was at the club and uh he didn't seem too happy about me not being there. And I thought, well, okay, well maybe he'll get the hint, whatever. So Friday, April 7th at uh, that night, you know, I put my son to bed and I went to bed myself. He, my son has his own bedroom and um, I only had a one bedroom apartment down by the beach. So I would sleep on the living room on this futon and the front door was right next to the futon and Um, it was just a small place. So that's how, that's how the sleeping arrangements were. And I went to sleep that night. And then the morning of April 8th is when it happened. Um, I was sleeping and all of a sudden I could sense above my head, the swirling massive energy. And it was swirling above my head and making this noise, like it was a tornado or something. And then I heard another noise and it sounded like there was a train on each side of my head, whooshing down the tracks, like making that repeat, like it was on repeat, like this, these trains going down 
the tracks on each side of my head. And it was a very loud noise, but it wasn't a physical noise. It seemed to come from some other realm, like almost it was happening from the inside of my own mind. And those noises woke me up. And I remember waking up and looking over to my right where the front door and the bookcase were. And I tried to move, but I couldn't because I was frozen. And I, and you know, at, in that moment, I had no control over my body. I couldn't scream. I couldn't move. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was vibrating. And along with the vibrating sensation came this buzzing sound. So next thing you know, I'm vibrating with this buzzing noise going on. And next thing you know, my spirit starts separating, um, starting with my head and my shoulders and my chest. And it felt like... The easiest way to describe it um, would be to say that it felt like I was in one of those like craftmatic adjustable hospital beds where you push a button and you hear like a buzzing sound, like a bzzz, but you could feel your, your head and chest and neck rise and everything. That's what it felt like, except it was my spirit separating from my body, starting with my head. And then finally I made my way out through my feet and my spirit's entirely separated from my body and it started hovering by the ceiling and in that moment I was like oh I, I'm having a near-death experience oh this is what it feels like okay because I'd heard about near-death experiences before and I'd actually read about them and, and I thought the subject was really fascinating so Upon realizing that I was having a near-death experience, I wasn't even scared about it. And I didn't even question how it was happening. You know, all I knew was that I was free, I was floating, I was hovering by the ceiling, and I felt very exhilarated, very much at peace. Um, it was like there was no fear. I didn't even care how I died. And I knew that my physical body was down on the futon below, and I didn't even care to look at it. I mean, it, I had no interest in it. All I could think of was like, you know, I could just feel my energy and it was sort of expanding and rolling throughout the room. And I remember just hovering there and I could see different perspectives at once without having to turn around. Like I, at one moment I was facing the living room window and then the next minute I was facing the other way, looking at the TV and the doorway to my son's bedroom. And the weird thing was I didn't see anybody. Like I didn't even see my, my son or anyone. But I'm hovering there and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, this is kind of cool. You know, like I was having fun and it sounds weird to say that dying was fun. But, you know, in that moment, I was like, I have nothing to do. I'm free from everything. And then I thought, well, where, where do I go? Like, what do I do now? <laughs> so um, I noticed that as soon as I had that thought, an opening to a tunnel appeared just beyond the living room window next to the, where the futon was. And in the window was this, was an opening of a tunnel. And I sort of just got sucked into it or just sort of gravitated towards it. Like I remember swooping over this table with all these photos on it. And a few of them were of my son. And I remember swooping over the table of photos into this tunnel. And the second I went into the tunnel, I was like, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready for this yet. I, I got way too much to do. And then the second I had that thought, I slammed, bam, back into my body and jolted up. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, whoa, that was not a dream. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm really glad I'm back because I got a lot of work to do, you know? So then I grabbed my cell phone. So I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe somebody called late at night and this weird buzzing sound just made its way into my dreams. But it turned out that nobody called. And I checked the time. It was for, it was uh, Saturday, April 8th, 2006 at 4.51 in the morning. So I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh, I'm like, how, how did I die? You know, next thing you know, I hear people outside my home and it sounded like there were maybe two or three people out there and I could hear the footsteps and I could hear them like the sounds of feet shuffling near the front door. And I, and I, the, the crazy thing was, is that I could sense their energies having, having just been back uh, fresh from the spiritual realm, I could sense their energies and I could sense their emotions and whoever was out there had, 
whoever was out there was terrified. They were scared. And all of a sudden I hear this thing hit my front door. It was like a popping sound. It hit the front door and it made these popping noises. And it sounded like a firecracker that wasn't, de- that wasn't detonating properly. And it was making all these popping noise. And as soon as that happened, I could hear them take off. I could hear the sounds of their feet shuffling and then two people running back down the driveway. And I thought to myself, I'm sitting there like stunned thinking to myself, Oh my God, somebody just tried to murder us. So um, I froze and um, I guess, you know, I thought to myself, what do I do? You know, like, the, the house, I don't, I don't want to open up the front door right now. What if, you know, someone's still hanging out out there and I don't know what kind of bomb they threw or whatever it was, but it, I, I'm guessing it was some sort of explosive device, like a bomb that didn't detonate properly. And I was too scared to open the front door. I just felt better with it shut. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, well, what do I do? Do I, do I call the cops? And then this voice came to me and it was, it was uh, crazy. Cause then at that moment I realized I was clairaudient, but the voice said, don't call the cops. Don't call the cops. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then I heard another voice saying, you're being watched. And I'm just like, okay. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, that makes sense because whoever probably, you know, whoever just murdered us is probably trying to see if I realized if they were doing it or not. Because this, this obviously was some sort of sneak attack, and I might have been being watched for a couple of weeks now and just not realized it, or maybe even longer than that. So I didn't call the police. So the, that whole day, um, I wasn't sure what to do. I, I just got this feeling that I should just play the role. The words play the role kept coming to me, and don't let on that you know, and just pretend that you don't know, carry on as usual. And I was thought to myself, I'm like, well, maybe I should stay with somebody else, like a friend or somebody. And then, and then it was like, no, no, you can't, you know, whatever voice was talking to me was telling me that I had to play this role because um, the, there would be more information coming to me as far as why I'm being guided to do this. So the whole next day I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have to play it cool and just pretend I don't know. So I don't even think my son and I left our place that day because I just was actually too afraid to leave. And the whole day was a blur. And I think all we did was um, we played some board games and we had a a memory game that we'd play with those little memory cards that you flip over and you try to figure out the matches and all. Um, I just tried to make the whole day very calm and normal And I don't think he knew what was going on either because I think he slept through the whole thing. So he didn't say anything to me about it. But um, I remember uh, it was the night of April 8th and I was uh, I put my son to bed again and I stayed out in the living room. Only this time (laughs) I slept with my contacts in (laughs) in case they were to come back. I would at least be able to see. And. um, uh. I guess um, I went to bed that night and I was thinking about it, uh, about what happened the night before with uh, me going out of my body and feeling at peace. And I was thinking about it. and I'm just like, it's really cool how, you know, all that happened. And I was still able to think, you know, and I not only was I able to think, but I was able to think with really intense clarity. And I know I wasn't just dreaming about anything because I knew I was awake and I, it was just really odd to me how I knew I was dead, but I'd never felt so alive before. And then I realized, I'm like, wait a second, I, I never saw a light. Like, I know with a near-death experience, you're supposed to be, there's supposed to be a light. Why didn't I see one? And then I wondered about it. And I'm like, well, you know, why didn't God show me a light? Is he mad at me for being a dancer? Is he, is he, uh, was I going to a bad place or something because I'm because of my job? Like, I didn't know. And I thought, okay, well, whatever. I'm just going to go to sleep, I guess. And, and I told myself, I'm like, you've got to sleep because um, you really need your wits about you. And, and mind you, like during this whole experience, I wasn't on any drugs. I wasn't drinking. I was sober, you know, um, sorry. And uh, completely sober. Because I, I was, uh, you know, my son was there. And at that point, you know, I had been sober for a couple of years. 
So um, I went to sleep that night and I woke up the morning of April 9th and I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. <laughs> because when I woke up April 9th, I saw this bright, beautiful light appear to me in my living room. <laughs> and it was this beautiful, bright white light. It was like an energy vortex. And it's, it was like one voice speaking, um, one voice made up of a million of different voices speaking. And um, this light was just uh, omniscient. It was omnipotent. It was the most powerful source I've ever encountered. And I, I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't even talk. And the light appeared and it said some, it told me some truths that were difficult for me to hear, but it was very important for me to know. So um, what the light told me was, um, before I get into what the light told me, I just want to say that there is going to be, um, I wanted to put a trigger warning on this part because a lot of what the light told me was not pleasant and it has to deal with um, assault. So if uh, assault is going to trigger anybody out there, I would just ask them just to beware and, and uh, be prepared. <laughs> so when I saw this light, the light told me, uh, it said, Sedona, your father was a very violent man. Oh, you know what? I should stop here and maybe give a little bit of a brief personal history because this has a lot to do with my upbringing. Um, when I, when it was 1978, I was five years old and I had um, an older sister and we're going to call her big sis. Big sis was adopted from um, an abusive alcoholic parent. I guess her father was an alcoholic and, and he was abusive and I'm not sure what happened with her mother. But in 1978, when I was five years old, big sis was about 15 or 16 and she ran away from home. And when I asked my parents why, when I was little, uh, there was very little explanation as far as why, except that she was the bad guy. She was a bad kid and she, they couldn't discipline her. And she was taking a lot of her anger out on our family and all this other stuff. They, they pretty much just went on a spirit campaign and just said that she was a bad influence and she was too much trouble and drama for our family to handle. So it was probably best if we just let her be and never looked for her. So, um, uh, what God told me, <laughs> um, oh, I guess uh, the reason why she ran away from home was because she and my father had gotten into a fight, um, and she threatened to run away. And when she threatened to run away, he pulled a gun on not only her, but our entire family. So he was waving around this loaded gun and he threatened a shooter. And after that happened, my sister went back to her psychiatrist, her therapist, and told the therapist that, you know, what our, what our father did by bringing out the gun. And the therapist removed my older sister out of the home. And uh, I guess she was holding her there at, in a group home before the, you know, while we were waiting for the court date so that they could figure out if my parents were fit to raise her or not because they were going to have a hearing for her. Well, the hearing never had a chance to take place because she ran away from the group home, group home because she didn't want to go back. Uh, she didn't want to go back to our family, I guess. And when, uh, when I saw the light, God told me specifically, he said, Sedona, he's like, your father was a very violent man. He sexually assaulted you and your siblings. And that was why uh, your big sis uh, threatened to run away from home. That's why she ran away was because of what your father was doing to you. And I mean, that's why he pulled the gun on her <laughs> was to control her from speaking up about it. Now, as far as how you died, Derek was hired by Ken's wife to murder you. And I was shocked. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Ken has a wife? Because if you remember, Ken told me that he was divorced and moved, moving into his own home clear across to the other side of the county. So God said that Ken, you know, Ken didn't tell you the truth. He's still married. Um, he has moved out of the house, but uh, he's uh, still legally married. And when his wife found out about you, she decided to hire Derek and those three girls to come into the club so that they could try to get you out so they could off you. 
And it turned out that um, Ken's wife, we'll call her Karen. Karen um, also hired somebody I knew from outside the club, somebody I knew personally. And that person also played a role in what was going on around my home the previous night. So uh, God told me about uh, this information. And he also told me, he's like, listen, he's like, you know, Ken lied to you. Yes, but he only did it because he didn't want to lose you. You know, he is in love with you. And, um, and uh, I guess um, then God told me some more information about, uh, I guess, um, he was very happy over the fact before I had my son, I had a major um, substance abuse problem. I had been starting to use drugs and alcohol from the time I was 13 years old. And I'm guessing it was because of the abuse that I was enduring in that home. And I was trying to numb out a lot of the depression and the feelings that, and the, and just trying to numb out the pain I was feeling as a result of being abused in that home. So from the time I was 13 until I was until I found out I was pregnant, I was using drugs, alcohol, smoking, um, following the Grateful Dead around the country and going to college, drinking. Um, I had, you know, it was pretty bad. But then once I found out I was having the baby, I quit everything because I wanted to be a good mom and have a healthy kid. Well, God was very happy about that. God says, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of you for quitting the smoking, the drinking and the drugs, you know, and respecting the life of your child. And he said, because, um, and God also knew that I had moved out to the West Coast because I wanted to pursue a career in TV and film. Um, so I had done some acting and screenwriting and stuff. And, uh, and God told me, he's like, because you chose to respect life, I'm going, he's like, he told me, he said, you're going, I guess after he, after he explained how proud he was of me for quitting all my vices, he said, um, you are to take the story of your life and create a Hollywood movie. And then God told me who the director producer would be. And it turns out that it's my favorite director and producer. So I was really excited to hear about it. And, um, and God says, you know, you are to, uh, to share your story through writing and through film. So I, and uh, the purpose, and then God revealed to me what the purpose of my life was. And that is to remind people how important it is to be loving and respectful of each other, especially to these abusive people out there, because um, uh, you just don't know how the truth is ever going to come to surface. And I guess my parents lied to me about a lot of things and, and uh, discovering this was really difficult for me because I, you know, they were talking all this madness about my big sis who ran away from home but meanwhile, it was them who were the problem. You know, they were the abusive people trying to make this innocent young girl who was 15, 16 years old seem like she was the problem, but she wasn't. She was just reacting from the abuse that they were putting her through. So, I mean, it, I, I think to myself, like, how bad did it have to be for her where the only better option was to run off and go on the street, you know? And uh, so God told me that... Uh, that I'm, you know, what the purpose of my life was and that I'm to carry this purpose out through sharing my story through writing and film. So, uh, and after God said that, uh, the light faded away and, um, I just sat there in stunned silence, like, Oh my God, like, I can't believe all this, you know, just, you know, I, I was really upset with my parents. Um, I guess, what happened was um, when I was uh, growing up in that house, I was in denial of a, in a lot of things. And there were a lot of things I had to, uh, to just stuff down. And um, I do remember some things going on in that house that were not appropriate to do around children. And, but then again, it's just when you repress all these memories and you just try to carry through, you repress these memories as a means of survival so that you can just, you know, at least cope with dealing cope with living in that home and uh you know i felt this roller coaster of emotions um after the light faded I, I all i could say was thank you god you know it just it was just really nice of god to come in and to show me the truth about my life because prior to my near-death experience it felt like i if I, I tell people that i told my therapist this that prior to my near-death experience i was living my life as though i had 
this turned inside out sock for a brain. Like my brain still functioned, but it was just turned inside out. And my parents, um, specifically my father, as I grew up, my father would gaslight me and manipulate me into believing things that weren't true. So it's just like, it really does a number on your brain. It causes brain damage as you're growing up when parents do that to you. And it also helps you, um, it also makes you question and disconnect with your intuition. And they do that so that they can, they have an easier time controlling you. So after the light faded, I was sitting there in my living room, just completely dumbfounded by what happened. I was like, I can't believe this. I just felt this roller coaster of emotions, everything from my God, my parents are horrible to, oh my God, I can't believe I'm, I might be winding up going to the Oscars someday. Cause God also told me that, um, that this, that, uh, this film I'm supposed to make based on the story of my life is going to do well at the Oscars too. So I got really excited about that. So I'm sitting there just, sitting there on my futon, just sort of processing everything that I was told by God. And after I saw the light, it felt like my brain, um, you know, it felt like the truth was like your hand reaching inside of a sock and pulling it right side out so that my brain would function properly. So, because now before my NDE, my, my perceptions of reality were completely like skewed. And now that I, saw the light and I had all this truth and knowledge downloaded to me, then I could see life much more clearly as it actually was, as opposed to this illusion that it once was before. And it, I mean, it really threw me for a loop because, you know, like I said, prior to the near death experience, I thought I was dating this divorced man, you know, and that Derek and Derek was just a good customer. And these girls were just being my friends. And that was all a lie. It was all an illusion. So it was definitely an awakening. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. To me, it seems like that you had the NDE right before they started shooting guns. And do you think it's possible that you were giving a choice then to stay or go? And if you would have went, then perhaps you would have got hit by a bullet or something? I, I don't think they were shooting guns. I think they were just, they just had some sort of explosive device that they threw at the front door because something hit my door and then it popped. Hmm. So I don't think they were guns, but to answer your question, when I was, when I was um, out of my body and I'm making my way to the tunnel, you know, I just, I don't think I was really given a choice. It was just a, an overwhelming feeling of not feeling ready. Mm-hmm. So I made the choice to come back, but it was just like, well, I'm just not ready. I can't go in there. Like I'm not, I'm, I have way too much work to do. Mm. And once I had that thought, um, I went bam back in my body. But the, uh, the thing was, it's, I guess these guys were planning my murder in such a way that they wanted to make it this terrifying experience for me. They thought they'd come to the front door. They'd blow my house up. I'd be terrified, screaming, running around the house, like dying or whatever. But the thing was, is that God took me out of my body before they even had a chance to make it to my front door. Mm-hmm. And God did that to me so that, you know, if I, let's say, if I did decide to go into the tunnel, I would have already been gone by the time that they made it to the front door. And God was just doing that as a, you know, just to be nice so that my death would be a lot more peaceful and it would be a much uh much easier transition. Hmm. And I really appreciated that a lot. And I, and I learned that this is not uncommon. Like if you say, for an example, um, say if you were in a burning building, for example, a burning high rise and you're, and the floor you're on was engulfed in flames and smoke. And the only other way out was to jump. Well, let's say you jumped. And I, I found out that say, if this person jumped, their soul would leave their bodies before they hit the ground because God doesn't always want our deaths to be painful and traumatic. He'll remove us, you know, from our bodies, you know, before any sort of impact has a chance to take place. And that's just to help us um, with the transition. And and that's what he did for me. You know, he took me out of my body before they even made it to the front door. Mm -hmm. So, so they're, they're planning this horrific death for me, but I was, you know, I was already out. Yeah. I get that because I've had a, um, a couple guests at least that were going to be hit by a car or a bus or something and right maybe milliseconds before they 
had the impact, they were already out of their body. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny because you, from an earthly point of view, their deaths look scary and terrifying, but for them, it's a totally different experience. Like they're already, they're already out and somewhere else, you know? And, and uh, I think, um, you know, I, I realized in those moments that uh, death is a lot less terrifying than life is. Hmm. Life is way scarier than what you experience on the other side. I mean, that's, that was my experience anyway, but I realized like life is just crazy. Like there's so many illusions and so many liars and people mm-hmm. hide, you know, manipulating the truth and rewriting history and stuff. And on the other side, there's none of that. You can't get away with that. Right. It's just when on the other side, you see people as they are and knowing there are no wolves in sheep's clothes because you'll you'll be able to see a wolf and discern it as a wolf about the other side is that there are no illusions like there are here on earth right did you ever confront ken about all this i did eventually um it was uh it was quite a while after it happened because the thing is is that i couldn't well i couldn't tell ken right away um, about what happened because as it were, God, God had uh, told me how he wanted me to handle Derek and these girls. And the whole thing was that uh, I had to go back into the club mm-hmm. and face them. And remember how I told you uh, that um, I heard the voice telling me, you know, pretend you don't know, don't call the cops. You know, I had to go back into the club and, um, and face them and, I had to pretend that I didn't know because what we were doing is we were giving them enough rope to hang themselves with basically, because uh, I was wondering to myself, you know, I wonder if anybody else in the club knows what's going on because this, this, this is juicy hot gossip here. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure like we're not the only ones who, who know about it. And uh, maybe a couple of weeks after I went back into the club, one of my coworkers um, took me aside in the dressing room and the coworker said to me, said, you're in danger. And I just kind of looked at them like, you know, I didn't really say anything because I wasn't sure. I guess uh, Jules and Christina and Jenna might have been in the building and I didn't want them to overhear anything. But I just kind of looked at that person. But the person told me they're like, no, you're in danger. They're like, watch out. Mm. And by that time, I had already known. Mm. So I couldn't tell Ken about it right away because um, we were trying to, we were trying to catch them in the act. So if I, and I was afraid that he would say something to Karen about it, who would then tell Derek and the girls and the other person she hired. And then there would be no reason for them to be sneaky anymore. They would just, uh, they would get, they would freak out and attack me just, And that was the reason why they attacked me in the first place, because they thought I was so close to figuring them out because of the way Derek was acting in the club. That's why, you know, they got all paranoid. They got all freaked out. They're like, she's going to call the cops. We better get to her before she says anything. And I'm thinking to myself, if I called the cops and, you know, right after they left, if I called the cops, they would have absolutely known for sure that I knew. Mm -hmm. I just had to pretend like I didn't know and go back to the club. and, And I couldn't tell Ken because I was afraid he'd say something. So I had to wait for them to get caught first. <laughs> oh, so they eventually got caught by the police? Well, n- not uh, not by the police. Um, it was, uh, I wrote about it in my book. I wrote a book about this because uh, um, is what God asked me to do. But I explained in the book how, uh, how, um, how I, you know, just played the role, pretended I didn't know. I had, I mean, I had done some acting lessons, but I had to go back into the club and face these people. And I literally had to act for my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to, I had to face these people who I was terrified of, and, you know, I was scared, but I wasn't. Cause I just, I was like, these people are so scary, but at the same time, they're so dumb. Like, of course they're going to botch a, a murder job. I mean, they weren't mm-hmm. professionals, they were amateurs. So, um, but yeah, we, uh, they did get caught, but it wasn't by the police. It was from somebody else. Mm. But by that time, I guess that whoever caught them said, Hey, we know what you're doing. And if you follow through with this plan, then everyone's going to know who it is. So your cover's blown, you're being watched, knock it off. And so mm. finally they couldn't do anything. Did the guy Derek stop coming in? Yeah, he, well, I switched clubs. Wow. 
because I, I got tired. I, you know, at that point, um, I was just tired of them coming around and, and he, it tapered off. Yeah. It did taper. His visits did finally start to taper off, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he finally stopped coming in. Well, the and then I moved. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And oh, I was just going to say that I moved to a different club. I was going to say the interesting thing is you'd already been dead once. So you really didn't have a fear of death anymore. Well, that was just it, you know, it's just, and I thought to myself, like, I guess what happened was I was in the dressing room at work and I looked and I went out to the floor. This was just right after the experience. I had to go back to work. I didn't get any sort of financial support from my son's father. So um, I had to go back in and make some money. And I saw Derek sitting out there and I remember running back into the dressing room and I'm just like, oh my God, like I have to deal with these people now. Like I kind of wish I was dead so I wouldn't have to, (laughs) but I had to go back in and, and I thought to myself, I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I'm really glad like that, you know, I got to see God's light because if I didn't, I don't know if I would have the courage to do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was a bit scary, but at the same time, I'm like, I know what it's like to die and I'm not afraid of it. So if, you know, what what is there to be scared of at this point? Right. Are you? They had a lot more reason to be scared than I did. <laughs> Are you still clairaudient? Uh yes. Um, following the following my white light experience, um, uh, before I went back to the club, I looked and I went to the bathroom, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was just blown away by what I had seen. Because uh, I literally looked like I was, I was 32 at the time of my near-death experience. I looked in the mirror. I thought it looked like I was 22 again. Like I just look, I looked like I had work done or something. Cause it wasn't just my, my physical being, but it was just like my entire spiritual being. Like I felt like I was just so calm and radiating good energy. And I just felt so like happy and calm and relaxed. And I didn't realize how much, anxiety I'd suffered from before because I wasn't feeling it then after that experience. And it was, it felt very woo woo. It kind of felt like I was stuck between worlds a little bit. Like I was um, living in a reality that was a little bit higher than 3d. And, you know, I I remember uh, finally when I did go outside, I opened up the front door and my neighbor had a lemon tree and I could see energy fields emanating from the lemon tree and uh, the morning of the white light experience, my son, my son came out of his bedroom and I could see like even his energy was all like happy and calm. And I mean, because as a family, you know, the family goes through stress after a breakup and he was no exception. But now he was just all happy and calm and he was giggling and dancing around and stuff. And I could just tell by his energy that whatever stress he had been under was gone so that was amazing but i i was just you know blown away and when i went back to work even my customers were saying they're like oh you look really well rested you know you must have gotten a really good night's sleep or something and wow you know this is great because you were starting to show your age and this is really nice that you look so young and fresh and i'm just like gee thanks guys <laughs> but um uh as far as being clear audience um i do get that once in a while um my intuition definitely uh became a lot more developed and um in the weeks following that event um not only did i look and feel a lot younger and fresher like i it felt like i had the energy of a 3 year old again like i was seeing the world through the eyes of a child um And I was able to pick up on what other people were thinking. Like I remember uh, driving to Disneyland and I remember being on the road and having to make a stop somewhere. And I just remember like picking up on people's energies and it wasn't always the most pleasant thing because some people just don't think very nice thoughts. So, um, but I could, but I could read energy fields. I could, um, I can still read people to this day. Like I would go back into the club and um, I think I blew away a couple customers. Like I remember this one customer was sitting there and I remember looking at him and he didn't have any sort of sports insignia on or anything like that. And I didn't even hear the person talk. 
but I just knew that he just came from Chicago. He just got in from a, he just flew in from Chicago. So I didn't even know this person. I went up to him and I was just like, hi there. And he looked at me and I'm just like, how is, I'm like, how's Chicago? You just get in. And he looked at me like, who are you? Like, what? Yeah. I just came in on a flight from Chicago. How did you know? And I was just like, oh, I could just tell by your energy. You're from Chicago. And it was just, he was just like, oh, and I was just like, okay, well, bye. <laughs> like, I didn't mean to freak him out. And then, you know, or I would be talking with one of my other customers at work. And, and a lot of times, you know, we'll be sharing stories or whatever. And, and one customer was listening to me to a story I was telling. And I looked at him and I could just tell he had to go to the bathroom. Like, he didn't say anything. And I said, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can go to the bathroom now. And he was just like how did you know I had to go to the bathroom? And I was just like, I could just tell, like, I don't know. I could just pick stuff up about people, you know? And um, so, yeah, those, those uh, abilities were greatly enhanced by a lot. And, uh, and um, also uh, God also took away my addictions. Like at that point um, I, I wasn't drinking or smoking or doing drugs. All that was over with when the baby came, but I did have a caffeine and internet addiction. Because we all know how, like, we like to, you know, go online with our caffeinated beverages and kind of get lost into, you know, the internet world and stuff. Well, God took away my caffeine addiction. And then I didn't feel like I needed to go online as much either. You know, I was just a lot more calmer, a lot more happier. Um, and uh, it, the effects of this lasted for a couple months. And I wish they lasted longer, but thing is is that you know it's very hard to live in the three-dimensional realm like this because you, you kind of feel a little bit woo-woo like you're in the 3d or know what you're still in heaven and and uh finally i was able to acclimate back to life in the 3d realm but i tell people i'm like make sure and then and then you know when i reacclimated, of course my caffeine addiction started up again and i tried not to let it happen because i really didn't want it to, but um, I guess uh, I want to warn people, don't drink, especially women, um, don't drink in excess of those energy drinks that are out there because um, between that and I was eating a lot of soy products too. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what else. Oh yeah. Between that and the caffeine, I wound up developing a, a very large uterine fibroid and I thought to myself, I'm like, and I asked the doctor, well, what caused this? They said, well, when you drink a lot of caffeinated beverages, like you do, your estrogen levels um, rise to the point where they escalate and they're very, very high in relation to your other hormones. And when that happens, uh, it's called being estrogen dominant and you can wind up with tumors and, you know, like fibroids and whatnot. So, um, of course I kind of kicked myself and said, Oh, I should have listened to God and not started back up on caffeine again. Mm -hmm. So the lesson there is just to listen to spirit. <laughs> mm -hmm. So now I switch back to decaf because I don't want to go through that again. I had to go to the hospital and have it taken care of, but I'm, I'm good now, mm -hmm. but for the longest time, yeah, it was just for, for about a couple months, I just felt like, uh, I could read people super well, even beyond that, I can still read people real well and, um, uh, I can tell when someone's talking about me behind my back. Mm -hmm. I can tell when someone's being phony. Mm -hmm. um, Are you still a dancer? I tell, uh, um, I, I continued dancing for the next, uh, let's see, I started in 2000, December of 2004 and I ended March, 2020 when the club closed. Mm. So I had a good 15-year dance career. So that was, um, you know, and I didn't want to stop dancing because I, I didn't want I didn't want what happened to make me be so scared to continue dancing. Because at the end of the day, like it actually was a job that I really enjoyed a lot because um, it was just fun to go in there and to get dressed up and and I I did have some friends in there. I did have some allies and and there were girls and customers who I really did genuinely like genuinely like and. I enjoyed the the performance aspect of it. I, I and that's the other thing after my near death experience is that my dancing improved. When I went back to the club, I went up on the stage and I noticed that my my movements were a lot more fluid and I could perform more easily. More people would come to the tip rail to throw money at me. 
Um, I could also tell who had money to spend. I could read, I could read the customers as they came in and I could tell who was going to spend money and who wasn't like, I could just tell right off the top of my head. Like, I'm like, Oh, that person's got money. And it's, and, and, you know, and the girls would be like, yeah, it doesn't look like he has money. He just has a jeans and t-shirt on. I'm like, well, those are the kinds of guys who spend. You never want to go to the guy with the suit on. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, it was just, uh, you know, I was able to, 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 you know, to just it help my money too. Mm-hmm. Has the experience faded or is it still as real to you as if it had happened yesterday? Yeah. Not a day goes by when I don't think of it. Hmm. I mean, it really, really rocks you at a, at your core level. It changes you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the one thing I wanted to say was that um, even though, you have, you, you know, you, you come back to earth with this new awareness that there is a place that we go to. And, um, and it has made me a lot more conscious about how I treat people because I know that the energy I put out to others is going to come back to me. That was one of the main takeaways I wanted to share from this whole thing was uh, to be very careful as far as what you give, you know, the kind of energy you, because the more love you send out there, the more that's going to come back to you. And it's the same way with negative emotions. If you put negative emotions out, that's going to come back to you energetically somehow. Um, but I do want to, I do want to tell, like, if anybody else out there has had a near death experience, um, I think a lot of people forget that after we come back from having this sort of thing happen, you know, we are still human and we are going to have moments where we are angry or frustrated or impatient because at the end of the day, we are still human. And, um, and God doesn't always, uh, like, you know, I, I know that even after the experience, I came back here I, and I, I've still sinned. And the thing is, is that um, uh, God, one of the things that God wanted me to know was that um, a lot of people get upset with themselves if they, if they committed a major sin of some sort and they think, oh, God, I'm going to hell because I stole this or I had an affair or I did that. And one of my main takeaways was God doesn't always just you know, look at your sins. He watches how you've changed as a result, you know, from, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't berate us for our mistakes. What what matters is if we learn from our mistakes, as long as we're able to take ownership of our decisions and choices and learn from them and grow, that's what God looks at. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, they'll sin and then they wind up going into this downward spiral, like, Oh, I'm going to hell because I did this. And then it kind of gives way to them making more bad decisions, more bad choices. And then before you know, their life's a mess and they're depressed and they just want to give it all up. But um, I just want to let them know that God doesn't always just look at your mistakes. He watches to see how you learn and grow from your mistakes. Mm, And that's something that's something I really wanted to share. And even after your NDEs, you're going to come back here. You're still going to be human. You know, I still drop F-bombs every once in a while. I, <laughs> I, I try to be careful with my language, but um, don't beat yourself up if you don't come back here a perfect person because there is no, per- there is no perfect human being. And, and, and I know a lot of people, you know, they like to hear our stories. They like to listen and they try to discern whether or not we're telling the truth. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't think that person had an NDE because they seem a little angry or they seem a little smug. And it's, and I just want to let them know that it's really good to be discerning. And of course you should listen to your intuition as far as if you're being told the truth or not, but just understand that when you come back from this experience, you're still going to be human and you're still going to make experience human emotions. And a lot of, a lot of what I experienced was anger, you know, anger with my family. I had, I had to distance myself from my family and that created a huge uproar because they had nobody to, you know, I, I, I was treated pretty much as the scapegoat and uh, the black sheep, along with my older sister who ran away. Mm. And when that, when you run away from an abusive family like that and you, you go no contact on them, then it's like all hell breaks loose because then they don't have you to, to lay all the blame on anymore. They got to fight with them amongst themselves now. Mm. So, um, And that's pretty much what happened. Well, you've brought up an amazing point that I never thought about. Just because someone has had an NDE doesn't mean they're going to come back and be a saint. 
they're still going to come back with human and they're probably going to try to do better and do better, but they're still human and they're still going to make mistakes and still yeah. kind of partly be who I mean, they were before. Maybe. It definitely, I mean, it definitely changes you. And of course, you know, after you go through something like this, like I said, you're going to be much more conscious of, um, you know, how you treat people. Because when I, um, you know, right after I had my white light experience, I sat on the sofa and then, you know, I continued to process this information and it felt like my mind had opened up and went all the way back to my birth when I, when I was just born and all the stuff just was processing through my mind. And I could see what in my life was real versus not real. And, um, and, and the thing was, is that uh, I had a lot to be angry about. And that's part of the reason why I'm talking about this now and, and writing and creating and trying to put a lot of my anger into my creative projects, because I don't want to be the kind of person who's going to lose their minds and then grab a gun and then start shooting people. Mm-hmm. Something myself, you know, I, I could have just as easily gotten a gun and paid Derek a visit, Karen, and you know, Karen a visit, anybody who was involved in my murder, I could have shown up. I could have gone back east to my parents' place and shot them for the pain and the agony that they put my, my siblings and me through. Right. But then I realized, I'm like, well, okay, if I go after them and retaliate with violence, then, you know, I'm going to be sending them. I, I could be sending them off to the same place I went. I mean, I don't know what their experiences are going to be like after death. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not the judge here. But I don't want to send them off to that realm, number one. Number two, if I throw that at them, it's going to come right back at me. And it's, you know, I don't want to go around shooting anybody because then that's going to destroy me. And that's what my abusers want. So why give them that? Why not put my anger into something creative and positive that will, you know, sometimes you have to take the bricks that people throw at you and build your life with them. And that's what I'm choosing to do because I want to choose this path because I feel like it would help a lot of people because it's not going to do me any good venting my anger in a violent way when all that's going to do is just destroy me. And that's, like I said, that's what my abusers would want. So I'm doing things this way because the last thing they want you to do is succeed. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's not my problem. My, I have one person to please and that's, that's the, you know, the big boss upstairs. So. That's why God gave me that project because he knew I was upset and he knew I needed an outlet, you know, and thankfully, you know, I had other outlets too. It's just at the time I lived down by the beach. So I would run a couple days a week by the water, you know, and then I would go to work and I would have dancing as a physical outlet. And that always helped a lot too. Um, But I really wanted to set a positive example to my son because I know that, you know, he's going to be dealing with a lot of anger himself and if, and I know he likes to write. So it's like, if he wants to tell his, his story from his perspective, as he went through it, he'll be able to, because I'm trying to set that example for him. Mm-hmm. So, so what I, what I did was uh, for, for years after the experience, I was working on a, on a screenplay and um, I really don't want to, I didn't want to put uh, a, a book out there until all the children involved in the situation were grown adults. My son's um, he'll be 20 uh, in a couple months and, and, uh, Ken and Karen's kids are also adults now too. And, um, with everything going on with COVID, something spoke to me and said, okay, you got to tell your story now. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, I, I have written a screenplay based on what happened, but the thing was, it's, it's a lot easier for me to get my story out there through writing a book as opposed to creating a movie. Cause, I feel like, well, I've been told that I'm a good screenwriter. I feel like I can learn a lot from the professionals up in Hollywood. And, you know, I would much, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, maybe I should write a book just to get the story out there. And um, the producer director that God told me I'd be working with um, actually doesn't read screenplays. He reads books. So that was another reason why I decided to channel my anger into a book. Hmm. So, Well, speaking about your book, is it out there for people to buy right now? Um, yeah, it's on Amazon and it's called Busting Through to Heaven and Exotic Dancers Near Death Experience. Okay. And um, I was going to say, I got one review and it was a three, it was a three, it was a very fair balanced review, but I think the reader said that um, when he went to read the chapters, it was the last chapter, I think about what my family, how my family continued to treat me. It was a lot for them to read. So I had to go back and, 
and re-edit without um, compromising the integrity of the story. I just wanted the the experience to be better for the reader. So hmm. I went back and edited it. But it, yeah, it's on Amazon. It's ready to go. It's in uh, Kindle and paperback too. Oh, great. All right, I'm running out of time. So I want to ask you here, before we finish up, do you have one last message that you want to share with everybody? Um, as far as living your life, your lives go, um, just uh, keep in mind that the way you treat people, the energy you put out there is going to come back to you. And that, um, and I want to tell people to stay in your life, no matter how difficult it may be, because there are challenges that are here to help you grow and to help all of us grow. Um, and uh, just to love and respect life, because what you put out there will come back to you. Well, thank you for that message. And sure. Sedona, thank you so much for being my guest. I wish you massive success with this book, and I'm looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. Thanks. I do too. I mean, as far as uh, as far as um, reaching this producer director, I haven't yet. So, but I'm hoping that the book will get into his hands and mm-hmm. and uh, he'd want to team up because I'm ready to go. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you. All right, thank you, Sedona, and have a great evening. All right, thanks, Jeff. You too. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.